You may have noticed in the order of service that at the end of, the, of this worship service, we will be installing new classes of members of the session in the diaconate. And that being the case, I wanted to bring a, a sermon related to that. It's coming from Matthew chapter 16. If you'd like to turn there, and I hope you will, it's page 822 in these Bibles in the pews. And as you're turning there, I want to mention something. It's just some pastoral advice to young husbands. Often the counseling load increases in January because, well, there are a number of reasons. Uh, in the church, it, it increases, so I want to save some time. Young husbands, do not buy your wife exercise equipment for Christmas. <laughs> do not pay attention to the Peloton commercials. <laughs> Ask me how I know. We're... We're in Matthew chapter 16. In just a moment, I'll give you the context. I know I'm, this is just a, a standalone sermon for this occasion. So in, in a moment, I'll explain what all's happening around what I'm going to read. Let's look at verses 13 and following of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So ends the reading of God's holy and infallible and inerrant word. Let us pray together. O oh God, with the psalmist now, we would pray that you'd open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. The church is not the solution, but it's the problem. The church is the problem today. That is the cultural narrative that we hear from a variety of directions that you pretty much can take all of the problems that we have as a nation, racism, oppression, people feeling guilty about things they shouldn't feel guilty about, and you can lay those at the doorstep of the church. I did not have to go far in conversation to find that out. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking with a man that I'd say is an acquaintance of mine for the past all 15 or 20 years. I don't know him very well, but we see each other almost every week uh, at this certain place. And when people find out I'm a, a pastor, i found that one of the best questions to ask to try to open up discussion about Christ is, I will ask, do you have a church home here in Macon? No one's ever gotten mad at me for asking that question. And I was not quite prepared, though, when I asked <clears throat> this man that question. He said, well, yes, for 
20 plus years, I sang in the choir every week at, and he named a church here in Macon, an older church, mainline denomination. He said, but about two or three years ago, I decided I have had enough. I've heard enough, I've seen enough, and that's it for me and church. He was reflecting kind of the negative connotation today that we have in the culture toward church. Last week, I looked on Amazon for books with the word church in their titles, and there were many. Among these, among those, I found these. Why I'm never going back to church again. How I left the church and found God. Why men hate going to church. Why young Christians are leaving the church. Those were just a few. The point is, that I'm trying to make, is that today... In our land, in America, the cultural narrative is that the church is the problem. But Jesus said otherwise. So let's go back to one of the premier passages in the entire New Testament about the church. And I think you're going to be surprised, many of you, at what we find here. Let me tell you what's happening in Matthew 16 leading up to these words, this discussion with the disciples. This chapter is a turning point in the entire Gospel of Matthew because it's a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. For the first time, this is the first time that that Jesus mentions his church, and it's the first time that he openly talked about his death and, and his resurrection openly to the disciples. Now, in the first four verses, and you don't need to reread those, but in the first four verses of the chapter, there's growing hostility between Jesus and the religious leaders. They have no faith. Then in verses 5 to 12, we have discussion with the disciples that have been with Jesus for some time now. And they still are not understanding, even from the things they have seen, like the feeding of the multitudes, They are questioning how will God provide for us. They are not connecting lessons that Jesus has taught them about faith. So we move from the first group who's hostile and has no faith to the disciples themselves who have little faith. And now we come to the passage I just read. And he begins, Matthew begins by saying that they were going to Caesarea Philippi. They're going on a retreat. Perhaps you in your, your business or in the office or as a, we sometimes as a church, we take retreats. It's a, it's a time to pull away from normal distractions of everyday life and to refocus on what God's called us to do. Well, that's what Jesus is doing with them. He's taking them to this city that's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Caesarea Philippi was named after Caesar. In New Testament times, it was, a, it was an intersection. It was a, a city on a crossroads. And typical of such cities, there would be people from a variety of places. There would be temples for various religions. There would be all sorts of stores and commerce. And the most famous temple at that time in Caesarea Philippi was a temple dedicated to the Greek god Pan, P-A-N, which means all, the god of all. So it seems proper then that in this city that worshipped many things or where the worship of many different gods and goddesses took place, that it would be there Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am, that the Son of Man is? 
And what I want to focus on for just a few minutes, and this is a very rich passage like a diamond, and you can look at it from many different angles, and there's a lot here, but I want us to look at just one angle, and that is the response of Jesus to their response as to who he was. Verse 14, when he asked the question about what people are saying, it says that they responded, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. You must understand the Old Testament had prophesied that Elijah would come again, and some people thought that that, that was in the way it, that Jesus was the fulfillment of that. John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Jeremiah in the Old Testament was known as the weeping prophet because his tender heart was broken over the sight of moral decay in the nation. Certainly Jesus had shown this same attitude, so it would be understandable that some might identify him with Jeremiah. So they give that, those answers, and then in verse 15, he zeroes in on their conclusions, and he says, but who do you, plural, speaking to the group, who do all of you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and gives the answer, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now notice the response that Jesus gives to Peter You did not arrive at that, Peter. You did not arrive at that conclusion on your own. This came to you because the Father revealed it to you. So it's by the Father's grace that Peter had come to recognize that Jesus was the Christ. Christ means anointed one or Messiah. Jesus means God is salvation. So when he says you are the Christ, he means you are the Messiah. Jesus says it was not a result just of Peter's investigation or his own conclusions. This was a gracious act of God. That's true for Peter and true for us today. And then in verses 18 and following, which is where I want us to focus for the next few minutes, he tells us what he's up to. What is Jesus' game plan? What is his strategy here on earth? And this is the first time in the New Testament that the word church appears. That word is ecclesia. You can hear the term we get ecclesiastical from. Literally, it means called out assembly, the called out ones. Just technically, the word's used 114 times in the New Testament. 90 of those times, more than 90, it's in reference to local churches, like the church at Rome or the church at Philippi. But here, when Jesus speaks of the church, it's it's pretty much agreed that it's speaking of the universal church, not of a local church. I love the writing of J.C. Ryle. I love what he says here about this verse. He wrote, It is not the visible church of any one nation, country, or place. It is the whole body of believers of every age and language and people. It is a church composed of all who are washed in Christ's blood, clothed in Christ's righteousness, renewed by Christ's spirit, joined to Christ by faith. It is a church in which every member is baptized with the Holy Spirit and is really truly holy. It is a church which is one body. Everyone who belongs to it is of one mind and one heart and holds the same truths and believes the same doctrines that are necessary for salvation. It is a church which has only one head and that head is Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is speaking here when he says, I will build my church of his universal church, of all believers through all of time. So I want you to see about four things here. First, Jesus is the owner of his church. He says, I will build my church. This was something new. Though the people of God had been in the Old Testament, God had his people with the Jews, and we refer to them as the church in the wilderness. Yet what Jesus is speaking about here is something new and changed because he's going to take Jew and Gentile and form them into one new temple, a new body, and in his church, natural distinctions are of no importance. Race, background, language, culture, kindred, and tongue. There's no distinction. The church belongs to him. Our Westminster Confession in chapter 25 says, There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head. He is the owner. It is his church. It does not belong to a group of people or a pope or a pastor, or a bishop, or a small group, or a large donor, or a person whose plaque is on the wall. You may be a young Christian here today. You may have only come to faith in Christ in the past year or so. You may have just recently become a member of this church. And you may be tempted to look around and see people that have been here for decades and feel a little sheepish or intimidated. Forget that. It is not their church. It is his church. It belongs to the Lord Jesus. Secondly, we see that Jesus is the builder of the church. If you've ever built something of, of consequence, like a house or maybe a, a new office space, unless you're trained in such, then you hire a contractor. There's a project manager to build it for you. But when it came to the church, Jesus is not contracted out to anyone else. He doesn't hire a group of flunkies, someone like me, to say, what should we do now? How should it look? How should we structure it? No, Jesus said, I'm going to build it. And it's going to be built according to my desire. I'm going to take the raw materials and put it together. And when Jesus said, I'm going to build it, he meant he was going to build it. And that's what he's doing today. I was keenly reminded of this about two weeks ago. Barbara and I were in Atlanta for our, our 14th grandchild's first birthday. And we were at our daughter Sarah's house with her husband and their other children, and it was her daughter, and typical of the daughter's mother, it had to be about Cinderella and princesses, and there was all this food that fairy dust things and everything had the Cinderella themes. and. She had invited, I don't know, 20, 25 families to come for this drop-in party. Many of these people were from her neighborhood or from the school where her sons attend or from Perimeter Church where they attend. But what we quickly noticed is that most of these people did not know each other. But all were about the same age. They were young families and parents and had small children for them to, to know each other. And there was a a woman there, a young woman, I guess she was in her young 30s, who was from India, or she was Indian background. And I was uh, talking with her, and she had her three children there, and I said, well, what brought you to Atlanta? She told me how she and her husband were part of a church plant right outside of Chicago. And then he found out about the church planting internship out of Perimeter Church, 
And he came there to be part of that internship, planning for them to move there temporarily, then move back to where they were in Chicago and continue leading the church they were part of. But having moved to Atlanta, they found out through the internship that there is a very large Indian population in Atlanta and around Atlanta. So now things were in the works, though it's not finalized, that through perimeter, he's being trained to plant a church there in Atlanta. And my mind went back. We know that it was the disciple Thomas that took the gospel to India, which now has a billion, more than a billion people live in India. You know that. More than three times the number of people that live in the United States. So Thomas was the first, history tells us, he was the disciple that took the gospel to India and was martyred for doing so. But the Protestant missionary we associate the most with India is William Carey, who over 200 years ago went to India. He died in India after serving the Lord there in missions. At the end of his ministry, we could have taken all of the converts from the work of, of William Carey and put them right in here probably on about three pews. That was it. That was the fruit of his ministry at that time. But you know what God has done since then? 300,000 churches in India. And among the Dalit people, the caste system in India is, is a very complex society, as you know. But in the north, the Dalit people are coming to faith in Christ in unprecedented numbers of what God is doing. And here I am talking to a young woman, and she and her husband are going to be planting a church in India. You think about China. The Christian gospel arrived in China uh, around the 8th century. The first Protestant missionary to China was Robert Morrison in the 1700s. And, and you know the history of missions in China, that there's been persecution, it's been difficult, it's been... Uh, oppressive, and yet Christian missionaries have labored and labored and labored, and today missiologists, those who study these things, tell us that there are more true believers in China than all of the United States. You think about other countries. Uh, we think about where God is moving the fastest today in building his church. Where is it? Of all places, Iran. It's in Iran. Now, the gospel's been in Iran since back in the early centuries, but despite the oppression and, and, uh, and still the penalty of death, if you convert from Islam to, to Christianity in certain places, uh, and yet it's thriving there. Why? Because the young people are disillusioned with what they've seen in Islam, and especially how, uh, the, what it does to women. So where is Jesus building his church He's building it all around the world, where he, wherever he chooses. He said, I will build my church. Third, we see not only that he's the owner of the church, he's the builder of the church, he's the triumphant leader of the church. We see that when he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Word pictures are very important. Uh, you see yourself through pictures uh, in various situations. And we can see ourselves as a church today in our culture, um, waiting for what's coming, hunkered down, kind of behind a, a wall, behind the fort, knowing, uh, well, we're probably outnumbered, and, and, and we, you know, the culture's turned on us. We're in the, 
the final days before strong oppression comes. That, that seems to be the mentality that, that many have, and yet that is not the picture here in this passage. Let me explain. In ancient Eastern cultures, and the culture of which Jesus was speaking, the meeting place for the community leaders was often the city gates. There wasn't a city hall as much as the city gates. So the gates of the city were, they served more purposes than just to enter and exit. They represented safety, they represented access, they represented defense. A fortified city was only as strong as its gates. The term Hades here, when Jesus refers to the gates of hell or the gates of Hades, literally means to see not. To see not. The unseen. So it refers to the unseen spiritual world. When Jesus uses the phrase, the gates of Hades, he's referring to the spiritual stronghold from which Satan and his legions storm out into the world with the assignment and intention of deceiving the lost, of destroying the witness of the church, and of controlling society. But notice the picture Jesus uses. The gates are fixed. Have you ever seen an army advance with gates? Who's on the offensive here? The church. The church is on the offensive, and the the kingdom of Satan is on the defensive. So the gates are being assaulted by the church, and they will not prevail. So it's quite a different picture than the idea that we as a church are just a hunker down in, a, in an oppressive society. This is a different mental picture. And so as long as we see the church as precarious and, and uh, threatened, then we will allow Satan to keep the gates of hell wide open and in full operation. So how do we attack the gates of hell? Well, since he's not talking about physical warfare with guns and bombs and a navy and an air force, he's talking about spiritual warfare. We use spiritual weapons for spiritual warfare. We know what those are from the book of Ephesians, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes ready with the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, praying at all times in the Spirit. When you get on your knees and you pray for your family members or friends or acquaintances to become believers, you are attacking the gates of hell. When you study your Bible and try to find answers for a friend that's skeptical, you are assaulting the gates of hell. When we, in a moment, ordain and install these officers and we are the church as Christ wants us to be the church, we are advancing and assaulting the gates of hell. When I asked the man the other day, do you have a church home? I knew I was taking a step toward the gates of hell. I hope to tell you the end of that story sometime soon. Last of all, Jesus is the shepherd of of the church. Now that's not here in this passage, but that's from many places in the New Testament. So he not only owns the church, he's the head of the church, he builds the church, he's the strategic leader of the church, he's a great shepherd. He said earlier in John 10, I am the good shepherd. And he said the shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The church is a flock. We are sheep. Christ is a great shepherd. But in each local flock, he appoints under shepherds, elders, And those that serve with them in a supportive capacity, deacons. What do they do? It's very simple. 
They lead the flock, they feed the flock, and they protect the flock. That's what elders and with the support of deacons are to do. Lead the flock, protect the flock, feed the flock. We find it throughout the New Testament. Isn't it, just a side note, isn't it fascinating and wonderful that God created the Christian church with no cultural attachment? It can look the same uh, in Iran or in the United States or in Alaska or in the jungles of New Guinea. It's not bound culturally to any language uh, or, or background. Uh, so it, it's brilliant. It's not tied to a particular time in history and, and culture. But in every case, if it should have elders and deacons. It should have the great shepherd and it should have under shepherds. What are they to do? Feed the sheep, protect the sheep, lead the sheep. In conclusion, what is, why has God done this? Why is Jesus building his church? Well, it's for you. It's for his glory. It's to populate heaven. But he's created you with an eternal soul. And he wants your soul to be protected. So he appoints these men in this local church, if you're part of this local church that you'll see in a moment, he appoints such people as that who, who are sentinels over your soul. Oh, and by the way, he wants you and me involved in storming the gates of hell. Let's pray together. Father, it is, it is your church. We, we thank you that it is not the problem, but it's, it's the answer. And it's the, it's the body of Christ on earth and that you are redeeming people like us through faith in Christ who will spend eternity with you. We are your bride. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.